most of us find the healthcare system totally confusing. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. In Getting Better Healthcare, Dr. Steve Feldman and his expert guests walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take charge of our own and our family's health care and what needs to be done for a healthier medical system. It's time to find out what to do. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman. On our show today, we have a, a really special guest. David Beyer. David uh, went to college at Colgate, got his BA there, did his uh, law work, received a law degree at Albany uh, Law School. He served as counsel in the U.S. House of Representatives and then was chief lobbyist for Genentech, a company that's made some some really fabulous medications. Um, He then served as the chief domestic policy advisor to the vice president from 1998 through 2001 with a focus on the economy and technology issues. He now is senior vice president for global government and corporate affairs at Amgen. Now, I'm familiar with Amgen um, because of some medications they make for psoriasis, um, uh, truly amazing new drugs that raise, you know, exciting issues that need to be discussed concerning the great medical advances that we're making and, of course, how to pay for them. Uh, David, let me welcome you to our show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, you know, I start off, um, let, me, let me just, you know, let the, our audience know that um, as a, a psoriasis expert, I've um, had some support from Amgen for speaking, consulting, and for, for research, and I've, you know, had support from other companies um, that make products for psoriasis and other other issues. It's really an exciting time for psoriasis patients. We've had patients with really horrific disease. And for a long time, we only had kind of marginal treatments. Then Amgen came out with Embrel. Other companies came out with other products. These drugs were just a phenomenal advance for patients. Patients would come in and they were tired all the time, they were achy, their skin was sore all over, they couldn't play with their kids, and we would give them uh, Enbrel. And, you know, I'm not talking about the research study, I'm talking about my personal experience here. I would see patients who would come to me and say, wow, this was life-changing, you know, my skin's better, my joints are better, I feel better, I can play with my kids now. It must be exciting to be involved with developing products like that. Well, absolutely. Uh, not just Amgen, but the other companies who are making uh, other products for psoriasis and other uh, serious unmet medical needs. It's an opportunity to help change the human condition. Um, at the end of the uh, process for all of us, uh, we wake up in the morning and say we did something to help other people. That's a, that's a profound feeling and uh, one I'm happy to be associated with. Yes. I, it, it's not how... When you look at the healthcare reform debate, how people in the pharmaceutical industry are usually pictured? Well, I think healthcare reform is actually an interesting window, and if I could take a minute and, and talk a little bit about that. The uh, situation in the United States is one of great promise and uh, great disappointment. The promise is that we have in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology sector. Uh, companies spending in 
most recent year for which statistics are gathered, 2008, 65 billion, B with a, a billion dollars on R&D. And that's to create hundreds and hundreds of new medicines for people who are seriously ill. The best thing that can happen uh, for people who have uh, rare diseases or uh, diseases like Alzheimer's and others is that there are new cures and treatments. Um, however, if uh, they're not able to access uh, those products because they uh, lack insurance, either public insurance in the form of uh, Medicare, which is for the senior community and for the disabled, or Medicaid, which is for lower-income citizens, um, people who lack that kind of insurance or who, who lack uh, private insurance, whether it's obtained through their employer or they purchase it individually. Um, I think, as you know, there are some 40-plus million Americans who lack insurance at some point during the course of any calendar year. And so for us in the pharmaceutical sector, we're happy to be part of uh, a process which we hope will lead to a, a solution to the access question and facilitate more people, uh, substantially more people, getting insurance and thereby getting access to the products that we currently make and the ones that we have in development for, uh, for the future. So there's two big issues here. One is the development of these new drugs, and then the second is making sure our patients have access to them. I had the opportunity to visit what I believe is one of the Amgen plants in Rhode Island, just an am amazing facility where Embro was being made. A lot went into that place. Uh, absolutely. Um, the process of drug development is uh, very complicated, and um, most people assume that drugs uh, come either from the federal government or from the university community. And while both the uh, National Institutes of Health and uh, leading research universities all over the country, and including ones uh, in Alabama and elsewhere in the South, contribute to the basic uh, research background, um, those entities, that is the federal government and universities, do not create, discover, and develop new drugs. That really comes 99% uh, of the time from the private sector. And it, the time frame and the cost are difficult to fathom. Um, on average, you start with roughly 5,000 compounds. One of the 5,000 compounds may make it through the process. Um, and the average period of time from discovery to approval, uh, that is permission to get a product on the market, is 12 to 15 years, and the average cost is $1.2 billion. It's very, very expensive, and it takes a very long time. Um, that, in part, is because uh, society correctly empowers the Food and Drug Administration to make sure that products are safe and effective um, before they're put on the market, and that means conducting human clinical trials. And it is a complicated process, and for biotechnology products, it's even more complicated because the manufacturing facilities, like the one that you saw in Rhode Island, are very expensive. Roughly speaking, they're about as complicated as a nuclear reactor on a submarine, and they cost about as much to build. Wow, what, a, what an interesting analogy. I had not heard that before. The, well, the, um, the, the other question that you, you raised, which I think is an important one, um, hopefully um, most of your listeners will have access to insurance, either of the public kind, Medicaid or Medicare, 
or private insurance. But there are some who either uh, can't uh, afford the insurance or who have inadequate insurance, um, or in some cases they have insurance, um, but they do not have the income to pay the copayments and the like. So many, many companies in the industry uh, have uh, signed up for something called the Partnership for Prescription Assistance, um, which you can look up uh, on a website, and I'll go slowly, www.ppparx, that's ppparx.org, um, and there's also a toll-free number, one 877 and that can point you to any of the company's uh, assistance programs. Uh, for the product that you mentioned, which is ours, and it's an example, it's not the only one uh, out there for treating this particular disease, um, you can go to www.enbrel, that's E-N-B-R-E-L.com, or 1-888-436-2735. Again, both uh, of those websites and phone numbers are available to help people who may not be able to afford the drug at all or um, can point them to insurance uh, experts who can help them with uh, co-payment in the event that they're unable to um, adequately cover co-payments. I imagine, is, you know, I'm, I'm not in the drug company, the pharmaceutical company compartment of the world. You know, uh, I'm in the doctor compartment. I have this sense that people in one compartment always want to blame the other people, like the doctors know they're doing a good job, but they want to blame the insurance companies or, or pharmaceutical companies for the problems. And, you know, I'm sure the people in the insurance company want to blame what the doctors are charging as, as part of the problem. But from, from your perspective, I just have the sense that the effort to make sure that everybody is well insured seems like a wonderful idea because it means that all those patients who are suffering with their arthritis, their psoriasis, or whatever disease they have that benefits from these many new treatments that are available can be helped. Well, absolutely. Um, if I could just take a minute, I think it's important in the context of the ongoing political debate um, and trying not to take sides either in a partisan way or, or otherwise to give your listeners some facts. And um, one of them is that we spend as a country a very large sum of money. Um, and one way of thinking about it is what's the percentage of spending compared to the percentage of the gross domestic product, which GDP is the sum of all goods and services sold during the course of a year. And the United States is spending in the year 2009 uh, an estimated 17.6% of gross domestic product. That's an immense amount of money. If you compare that to two other countries that are leading Western democracies that also spend a high, high level, um, the average for Switzerland is uh, 13% and same for France. The overall average of all developed countries, that would be uh, United Kingdom, Sweden, uh, Japan, things like that, would be 9%. Yet um, we have the problem um, that I raised before, that is we have a large number of people who are without insurance, and that's not true in any of these other developed countries. And by some, not all, 
measures, the outcomes for patients um, are not as good in the United States as they are in some other countries. Use life expectancy at birth as an example. Japan, who spends as a percentage of their income less on health care than we do, has a life expectancy that's almost five years longer than ours. Spain, it's two years. Uh, France, again, two years. So these other countries are spending less, but they're getting relatively good value. And for the United States in this healthcare debate is how to simultaneously expand coverage or improve access through insurance while doing so in a way that constrains or limits um, costs in a way that continues to enable doctors to make intelligent, informed individual choices for their patients. And that's pretty complicated stuff, and that's what Congress is struggling with now. One of the things that really drives my thinking on about the cost of health care comes from just sitting in the room with patients. And, you know, I may have a patient with, you know, just a few spots of psoriasis, nothing really horrific, but they may have a choice of a very inexpensive generic that they could pick up at Walmart or Target for $4, or maybe some branded drug that costs, I don't know, 100 or $200, or maybe the state-of-the-art combination drug that's $800. And maybe that $800 drug is, I don't know, 10% better than the generic. Maybe it's 20% better than the generic. The well-insured patient might say, give me the $800 drug because it doesn't cost me any more than the $4 drug. Um, it, it seems like those kinds of things aren't being addressed um, in, in health care reform, that, that, that we're looking at insuring additional people, which will add cost, but there's very little incentive in any of these plans being put on the patient to conserve, which is something that they have in every other aspect of the economy. And I don't think they can expect me, the doctor, to do the conserving because you know, I think my role is to give patients the best choice, uh, irrespective of cost. But maybe society doesn't think so. you have any thoughts on that? Well, there, there are a couple of things in the pending legislation that will address the so-called cost curve. Um, one of them is uh, a proposal in the Senate that the president has talked a lot about um, to authorize a commission to take a look at uh, a potential uh, reductions in Medicare spending in the future. Uh, that's one idea. Another, uh, there's legislation uh, pending uh, dealing with um, expensive biological products. Uh, frankly, it's products that Amgen makes. And the question there is, what should be a fair patient-centered process for the approval of products uh, that are on the market, biological products, after all of their relevant intellectual property has expired. And a system like that exists in Europe, and it's had a modest uh, but important effect on um, increasing the number of products on the market and at the margin uh, changing the cost structure. And legislation on that point, uh, commonly referred to as follow-on biologics, uh, is pending in both the House and the Senate bill, and that could uh, begin to address some uh, of what you raise. Uh, the experience in Europe to date has been the price reductions for products susceptible to that kind of competition after they've gone through robust clinical trials. Um, 
is about a 20% reduction. So there is some assistance there. Um, but I think the, the harder question that you raise is how do you make prescription decisions um, for individual patients? And I think our hope is that you look at what's in the best interest of the individual patient, um, their genetic makeup, if you know it, um, their past history with respect to a particular disease or condition. And there is um, uh, a movement underway in the United States for something called comparative effectiveness, which is the measurement of uh, value um, of particular interventions, whether they're surgical or uh, medical devices or drugs. It's hard to do, and the hope is that instead of looking at the unit cost, the $4 versus $800, um, that smart people using the right methodology try to determine what's in the best interest of both society and some discretion for the treatment of individual patients. If the $800 product avoids hospitalizations or improves somebody's quality of life, um, then that may mean that the real value of that product is far, far greater than the $4 product. And uh, having access to better information like that can help uh, inform decisions by patients and doctors. It's, uh, it's tough. You know, when you have the third party paying for things, then the patient, you know, only has the incentive to take the best possible treatment, whether it's cost effective or not. I mean, in my world, the $800 drug may be, Let's say it's twice as good as the $4 drug. Right. You know, right. patients, if somebody else is paying it, rationally should take the $800 drug because it's twice as good. But if they were paying for it themselves, they probably wouldn't have chosen the $800 drug. And if, if the alternative then is, well, the third party is going to decide, well, I think death panels is too strong a word, but, I mean, it means that somebody else is doing the rationing if the patient isn't doing it themselves. Well, uh, you raise an important point. There are, and I'm sure you see this in your day-to-day practice, um, insurance companies that have uh, formularies, that is preferred drug lists, where they may change the copayment amount between the generic drug and an innovator drug. Um, some companies, uh, Pitney Bowes is an example, uh, Safeway is a, a grocery store chain, um, they've determined that in some instances, um, it's in the best interest of an employer to uh, treat people who are obese or who are uh, about to undergo uh, onset of diabetes to treat them uh, pretty aggressively by lowering or eliminating a copayment so that people have a greater chance of overcoming the disease or getting, uh, getting the right treatment. So I think there are a lot of uh, ways of doing the value-based purchasing that you're talking about. Um, and it may not be just uh, the choice between the four hundred, the eight hundred dollar drug, and the and the four dollar drug. Um, and insurance companies have a role to play. Hopefully, they make those choices on the basis of clinical information. And at the end of the day, they don't completely uh, ignore the patient interests or the doctor's informed judgment. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. This is Steve Feldman. Our guest today is David Byer, Senior Vice President for Global Government and Corporate Affairs at Amgen. Uh, 
David, you mentioned Safeway. Uh, the, the another grocery store chain, Whole Foods, uh, has a a different approach to health insurance. They use the high deductible uh, insurance along with the health savings account. You have any comments about that approach? I, I'm not sure I really know enough to to offer uh, much on that point. I think each sector of our economy has. Uh, uh, different work patterns, and it, uh, I don't know the benefit scheme at Whole Foods well enough to determine uh, whether that's a good or bad thing for them or their employees. All right, very good. Well, we, we've covered some about the the drug development and all that goes into it, the, the science behind it, the the technology that's required for making the drugs, how much money goes into drugs that never developed, the human side of testing. You mentioned drug safety. I get the sense that this is something that's much more difficult for the FDA to handle than their obligation to show that drugs are effective. It seems like in a study of a reasonable size, a few hundred people, you can show that a drug is effective. I'm just picking um, Embryol as an example. If you, you, you give a you know, a few hundred patients with psoriasis or um, embryo or placebo, or if you took patients with rheumatoid arthritis and gave them embryo or placebo, you would know very quickly how effective the drug is for these patients. But safety is really hard to tell because something could happen one in every few thousand, and you're not going to tell in a, in a study of, you know, a few hundred people. Something could happen 10 years down the line, and you wouldn't know from a study that only lasted, um, you know, two or three years. Um, what, what are your thoughts about safety assessment of these products? Well, I'm, I'm not going to comment in, uh, about uh, our particular products, but I can make some, some general points. Please. I think if you look at um, what happened uh, sort of in historical terms, uh, Going back to the early part of the, the last century, the early 1900s, um, products got on the market, uh, so-called patent medicines, which were uh, allegedly safe, um, may or may not have been. And then uh, there was a controversy in the 1950s and early 1960s, and Congress amended the law in uh, 1962 to require proof of both safety and efficacy. And I think what's happened over the last I'll call it five or six years, is an increased focus on exactly the same kind of safety concerns, Steve, that you've talked about. And what's happened in that period of time is that uh, Congress has been um, active in the area. They enacted a uh, new statute um, giving the FDA new powers, new authorities to increase their scrutiny of drug safety. And uh, those powers include uh, the ability to effectively impose on companies uh, post-market surveillance obligations. It's a kind of big, complicated phrase, but essentially what it means is do a really uh, fine-tooth uh, comb way of assessing what happens with products after they get approved. Um, they can impose uh, limitations on distribution. In the extreme case, let's say it's a painkiller of some sort, an opioid, um, they can require um, doctors and uh, healthcare professionals to be trained on the use of the product. Um, they can require companies to maintain registries, which keep track of 
utilization of a product. And then in addition, there is an adverse event reporting system uh, where patients and physicians are encouraged um, to submit adverse events uh, associated with uh, a drug use or a drug-drug interaction. And then those reports are evaluated very, very carefully by the FDA. And in the last couple of years, the FDA has done a uh, number of things to in increase the amount of information that's available to patients and physicians early on before they've even determined completely the potential uh, causal connection between an adverse event and a product just so that people uh, can be on higher alert about those uh, safety events and hopefully encourage more reporting. So I think there has been a, a pretty dramatic change in the view of drug safety um, by the FDA and I know uh, all the companies in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology sector, especially Amgen, take our safety obligations as uh, extremely, extremely important. Um, we want to make sure that people who take our products take them appropriately, um, that they use the right dose, they use it for the right conditions, and uh, if they have any adverse events, that they report them to their physician and then the prescribing physician and their healthcare uh, professional allies um, and colleagues also do the same. So I, I think there have been changes, um, but it is uh, something where everyone is striving for, I think, the right outcome. And uh, between Congress, the industry, and the FDA, important new and positive changes have been made on drug safety. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare. This is Steve Feldman. We're talking today with David Beyer, Senior Vice President of Global Government and Corporate Affairs at Amgen. David, I think we scheduled a half an hour with you, and I am so appreciative that you took the time to speak to, to us today. Did you have any final thoughts you wanted to share with our listeners? Um, no, just uh, I would encourage everybody uh, to uh, make sure that they, to the extent they can, um, I try as hard as they can to get access to insurance and uh, once ensured that they maintain a relationship both with a primary care doctor and uh, when they have a particular condition or need uh, treatment that they see the right specialist and they engage in an honest, full dialogue about what's going on with them and that they become active participants in their own care and treatment. And Steve, thank you for the opportunity and uh, best of luck. Likewise, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks. Well, it was a real pleasure having David on as a guest today, uh, having been the chief policy advisor to the vice president with a focus on the economy and, and technology-related issues, and uh, having served as senior vice president uh, at Amgen, a company that makes um, high-tech biotechnology drugs that change patients' lives. I think he has both an inside and outside uh, picture of healthcare reform and what's involved. Certainly, the idea of insuring more people and getting rid of the, the 40 million uninsured has certain attraction. On the other hand, of course, it's going to increase cost. And how one controls the cost while insuring more people, I think, is where the devil is in the details. Uh, David pointed out the idea that there could be panels. Uh, even independent panels that will address cost-effectiveness of medications. But no matter how government or third parties regulate health care, 
it's going to come down to some form of rationing. Uh, you know, you can call it by a less uh, bothersome word, but that's basically what it comes down to. Finding some way that patients ration their own health care, uh, at least their own health care costs, the way they control their costs for food and housing and everything else, seems like it could be the best way of, 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 of addressing this, uh, or at least the most... Uh, the most free market American way of doing it. The one thing I did want to reiterate for, for, for folks uh, who tuned in late was something uh, David Byer said about patient assistance programs. The pharmaceutical industry, he pointed out, has created a partnership to help patients uh, who don't otherwise have access get access to modern medical therapy. And he gave us the website and phone number for the partnership. It's www. P as in Peter, P as in Peter, A-R-X dot O-R-G, P-P-A-R-X dot O-R-G, and the phone number 888-477-2669. Well, that's our show today. I want to thank you for tuning in to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman, and I hope you'll join us next time. Thank you for joining us today for Getting Better Healthcare. For more information about Dr. Feldman and about healthcare, please visit drscore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com. And we'll see you back here next week.